This is Bob Bledsaw Jr. of Judges Guild, and you're listening to Save or Die. You burst through the door. You find a small room filled with gold and jewels. And a red dragon, he starts to breathe. Save or die! Episode 116, Save or Die Podcast. I am here as your host, DM Mike, and along with me is the DM who put the fun back in malfunction, DM Jim, <laughs> and the lady who put the romance back in necromancy, DM Liz. Hello. And this is an email show. Although at the end, we're putting in a recording of... The first chapter of the Princess Arc saga by Bruce Hurd that a fellow by the name of Ted Meister has been recording and has given us permission to add to the podcast. It won't be regular, regular, but generally every couple of episodes or so whenever Jim finds the time to stick it in the podcast and we're not already way too long. Yeah, we can't make it dependent on when I find the time or it'll never happen. <laughs> <laughs> Period. But it's experimental, so if you like it, let us know. If you hate it, let us know. Exactly. So, uh, before we get into emails, do we have any announcements? I have a small one. Okay. Uh, let me get my Facebook page up in front of me. A gentleman by the name of Wes Blair uh, posted a cartoon on my Facebook wall uh, that says, Thought of Save or Die. And the cartoon has a swear jar, and next to the swear jar is a Doctor Who reference jar. <laughs> so besides being funny, I thought that would be a good idea. And since I just referenced Doctor Who, there's one quarter in the jar. So 25 cents every time somebody does that. So what do we do with the money? Uh, we save it up we, until we can, can afford a classic Doctor Who DVD, and then we'll share it or something. Uh, okay. <laughs> wait, wait. That sort of encourages the behavior, doesn't it? Oh, well, well who cares? <laughs> well, um, all I'd like to say is I went uh, searching on YouTube, as I often do, and I came across an interesting video by a Nathan Pankey, which references Save or Die. That guy <laughs> owes me money. Does he? <laughs> yeah. No, I just like saying that. <laughs> Sometimes anyway, it works. <laughs> his video involves him listening to Save or Die and then asking his young son what class he wants to be. Oh, I remember that. And it's very, very funny and sweet and cute and funny. So kudos to you. We'll put a link in the show notes to your uh, YouTube page for that. That's kind of awesome. I haven't seen it. It yeah. is so adorable. You should you should watch it. <laughs> Come on, Liz. You're the only one without an announcement. I, I still don't have an announcement. My announcement is that I don't have an announcement. Okay. Well, actually, I guess I've made this announcement before, but I will make it again because I don't think we'll be recording again until afterwards. But just to remind everyone, Mike and I are going to be at the Tyler Rose City Comic Con the weekend of October the 23rd through the 25th. Uh, Mike will be running a victorious game, possibly a Holmes Basic D&D game. We'll have a table. We'll be giving away things. There'll be candy. It'll be awesome. So if you're yeah. in East Texas, come see us. Yay. Yay. Liz has really loaded up on victorious swag to show and give away at the place. So it, it should be good. Oh. Yes. And the Lesser Gnome has also donated some giveaways for us to pass out at the table as well, including some cards that have a code for a 50% off purchase at the Lesser Gnome online store. So come on down for that, if for no other reason. <laughs> yeah. 
Very nice. Are you giving out monocles? Ah, uh, well, we actually ordered some monocles from the the gentleman's single use monocle Kickstarter that was going on a few months back. Uh, we did not order enough monocles to be able to just give them out willy nilly, but we did order two three packs. Um, if they show up in time, and we got a message a couple of days ago saying that they've shipped, um, we might give out a couple of monocles to some incredibly cool people who come by our table. Like cool uh, people who bring you cookies and stuff. Yeah, or cool people who may not have liked our Facebook page, but they have a mobile device and they decide, hey, I'm going to like the Facebook page and then we'll give them a monocle. Or they play in the victorious game and do really, really well. <laughs> the or... monocle of victory! <laughs> exactly. All right, well, let's click to our normal little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about emails. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as a dollar fifty a month. That's right, a dollar fifty a month goes a long way. Thank you. Zach Glazer, head of Lesser Known Games here. In November, we will be running a charity game using our newest box set, Death and Taxes, to support the Extra Life Foundation to benefit Children's Miracle Network hospitals. <coughs> um, you can support this effort by going to extralife.org and making a pledge in the name of Robert Glazer or going to lesserknown.com slash children. Robert Glazer? No wonders you go by Zach. Listen, let me show you how to do this. I cast charitable contributions. You will now go to extralife.org or lesserknown.com and make a generous donation to Help Children's Hospital. You can even write it off both your death and taxes. See what I but, did there? But Don't interrupt me! And my favorite iPodcast minions will have a nice pledge link right on the webpage of this very episode to make that easy. Ah, that's great. Dopus, thanks. Don't mention it, Robert. Get down, get down. Get down, get down. The Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh man! Emails or voicemails or something. Anyway. Messages from the past. Do we want to do the voicemail first <laughs> or leave it to the end? I thought we decided not to do the voicemail. Oh, yeah. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. Edit that out, would you? Sure. Sure, sure. All right. Emails. Emails. We have emails, Liz. I hope so, or we have no well, reason for this podcast. Well, this is an email show, so <laughs> <laughs> yes, oddly enough, we do have emails. Our first email is from FD. <laughs> <laughs> FD. <laughs> Spelled out, E-F-F-D-E-E. Yes. So it's like Jeff D, but without the J. So <laughs> anyway, FD writes, One tip I've discovered for teaching kids the game is to color code their dice. Red for D4, blue for D6, orange for D8, etc. That way, instead of saying pick up the six-sider or pick up the cube, you can just say roll the green one. I'm still in the 30s, but slowly making my way forward. Enjoying the show immensely. DM Freddy. Thanks, Fred. Well, yeah. if you're in if you're in episode thirty, by the time you get to this email episode where we read your email, <laughs> it's gonna be next year. But oh, rest oh. assured, we enjoyed your email very much. No, the kids will be in college by the time he gets to <laughs> one one sixteen. Of course, you think about it, the seventies TSR box sets, whether it was Holmes, Basic, or Gamma World or whatnot, they all had those low impact dice that were multicolored. And well, I wonder yeah. if that was part of the reason. I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that because he suggested red for D four and it needs to be yellow because that was always our little campfire around our minis on the table. <laughs> yeah. And really sharp. So you, if you drop it on the floor you can find it by stepping on it and taking it. That- 
That's D4 not kid-friendly. No, but you take a D4 of damage when you ah, step on ah, the sea. Ah, so, um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, next email. <laughs> that's a, I think that's an awesome idea, actually. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. I, um, although I don't know how many companies sell sets now that are different colors. They usually... Well, there's so many places where you can, you know, pick out from bins yeah, what yeah, yeah. supply you want. So just build your own. Yeah. 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 That could do it. I mean, none of my dice and my dice bag match. They're all different colors and some of them have the sharp pointy ends and some of them are the newer ones with the rounded edges and it's like they're all different. It's just this weird hodgepodge of dice that I use. You can absolutely go online and order the dice piecemeal one at a time and pick your colors. Okay. Pick your color. So, anyway, our I next... flavors. That's right. <laughs> Do not eat the dice. <laughs> hey, I wonder if anybody thought of doing edible dice. I've got the chocolate dice. I mean, I was thinking more like hard candies, you know? Kind of like those ring pops. Only make it as a 20-sider or something. You're still taking damage from an edible D4, no matter what you make it out of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You don't want to swallow that <laughs> until it's melted. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Our next email is from Anthony Reagan. And he writes, Greetings, secret masters of save or die. Wah-ha-ha. Ha. I like I, that. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to comment on T-Man's discussion of the pros and cons of Race's class. While everything he said is spot on, I think he missed a couple of points in its favor. First, to explain my perspective, while I started with OD&D in the 70s, most of my gaming, growing up, was under AD&D 1st Edition. I feel, yes. you, I feel you, brother. <laughs> Hence... Demi-humans could have a variety of classes as well as abilities. Years later, thanks to the efforts of James Malazuski at the now-defunct Grognardia blog, I started getting seriously interested in basic D&D and its many clones. On rereading BX and Cyclopedia D&D, I was struck by the big advantage of race's class. It brings a sense of the alien back to demi-humans. For example, borrowing from an optional rule in the Cyclopedia, elves in my game will cast druid spells, not those of the magic user. And only elves can do this. No other race, including humans, will have access to druidic magic. With that, elves immediately become again something a little wondrous, a little mysterious, perhaps even a little feared by the normals of my setting. While work would need to be done to do something similar for dwarves and halflings, I like where this is going. I think it has the promise to make demi-humans something other than humans in funny suits with bad accents. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for now. I've only recently become a listener to the show, but I'm hooked and looking forward to many more. Best wishes, Anthony. Welcome aboard, Thanks, Anthony. Anthony. Yeah. And yeah, that is something I've toyed with, too is making elf spells the druid since I don't like the companion box set druid where you're basically druid becomes a prestige class of cleric. It's like what you're a cleric until X level and then you become Right, a then druid. you just choose to become a druid. That always struck me as kind of weird. Yeah, that was um, kind of a a clunky sort of Yeah, I mean I think that works with sun concepts like the paladin I think it could work, but but it's just not a druid. I think Anthony should check out my favorite version of classic D&D because it does exactly what he's talking about. You know, dwarves can smell gold. Halflings are lucky for the whole party. And what version would that be, Jim? <laughs> Dungeon Crawl Classics, of course. <gasps> I haven't heard about Anyway. <laughs> That's getting weak. Yeah, I mean, the, there is, and the companion box set does give certain things, like the black flame for halflings and, and such, you know, basically giving stronghold level or higher level characters little demi-human powers that make them different from, as he put it, you know, humans in funny suits and bad accents. So, yeah, no, that sounds awesome. Next email. Next email. Our next email is from Gramps Toolshed. Gramps. That is the all-time awesome online name there. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, Gramps writes, Greetings, sod crew. I was wondering if any of you have any military connections. It seems like the gaming industry has quite a bit of military in their background. I am also a career soldier. I've always been interested in how the military often has a thriving gaming industry in the background. Recently, I was with my unit and we were waiting, always hurry up and wait, and we got to talking about gaming, and only two guys claimed to have never gamed before. Everyone broke into enthusiastic descriptions of past campaigns and characters, and one of them tried to press me into being a dungeon master. Ha <laughs> Have any of you served in uniform? Played with soldiers in your group? Do you have any tales of tossing dice on the frontiers of Korea or the desert plains of Arabia? <laughs> Let me know if I sound crazy here. <laughs> May all your hits be crits. Gramps. Well, well, I'm the oldest one here, and the Korean War was well before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but there are troops, you know, that are stationed in Korea now, so oh, maybe that's what he meant. You're absolutely right. <laughs> well, I served four years in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> that's, about, that's as military as I've gotten, I'm afraid. I'm a military historian, but... Yeah, no, that, I'm af I'm afraid not. It's an interesting question because I've never served. I was uh, I I did like the day I turned eighteen, I had to register for the draft. But you know, Nam was well long over, and I never had to do anything. But uh, I, he's right. I mean, Jolly Blackburn and Barbara Blackburn were both in the army and played D and D while they were stationed in Germany. Uh, Tim Cask was in the navy during Nam. He's told me lots of stories, and of course. Uh, the uh, head honcho, Gary Khan, Luke Gygax, is a, a major in the reserves right now, which is why when he asks me to do something, I say, yes, sir, and snap a salute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think of all the gamers I know, easily half of them either are or were in the military at one time or another. So, no, I agree. I think that is there's a unrecognized gaming scene in the military i remember we got an email quite a ways back from a fellow who talked about running uh games in in his submarine when he was assigned in the navy and you think about that you know you're on a deployment in a sub three four months at a time gotta do something <laughs> yeah tim's told I, me tales of them playing war games on the ship too yeah because I imagine broadband on a submarine sucks, so, you know, there's no net surfing, so why not? I don't know, Liz, have you been in the military? Yes, Liz. <laughs> uh, I personally have not. My dad's family is a military family from several generations. Um, my dad, his brother, my grandfather, my uncle, um, so... The Galeanos have been in the military for quite some time, but I never did actually go in myself. So, Still, keep the faith, Ramps. <laughs> and our next email is from Iron Face. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Iron Face writes, Interesting show you put on, but you left out a bit of Hargrave's gaming legacy, namely his other grimoires, published dungeons, and even the Arduin Adventure, which was his version of the Holmes Blue Box and created with the idea of introducing players to his RPG system that broke away from traditional D&D. Well, that's true. On the other hand, I will say just covering the four versions we did was a huge show. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking. And like... I, I like to think that we were sure to point out in the show that these aren't the only versions. They were just samplings that we picked out to cover in a hour and a half-ish show. So you're right. We didn't cover those things. It's not like we left it out. We just haven't gotten to the rest of it yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we may revisit some of his other works in the future. But, yeah, I mean, if we had said everything about everything, we either would have had a four-hour-long show or we would not have been able to give any of his products any kind of, you know, you know, any kind of the time they deserve to have. It would have been just really brief, bam, 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 and just barely touching on any of them. 
Right, and being a classic D&D podcast, we cover it from an a point of view of a classic D&D lens, which by definition means we're not going to cover all of it. Yeah, wasn't that one of the episodes we had John Peterson on as a guest yep. host? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because that... he used his original version to to do his notes and everything from. That's the that's literally the best we can do because John knows everything. Yeah, <laughs> and I just seethe within me because of his collection. But oh well. Well, thanks for the email. Yeah. Next. Our next email is from Aaron Smale. Dun dun! I swear I'm going to submit something soon. No one believes you anymore. Yeah. Oh oh oh! That's the same guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No one believes you anymore, Mike. Just forget <laughs> it. <laughs> anyway, Aaron says, "Hey, Saudis. <laughs> First off, love the show. It's really the only old school podcast that I enjoy." And a big shout out to DM Mike for being benevolently curmudgeonly. Ah. DM Liz for being entirely fair and balanced. Mm. And DM Jim for being hilariously evil. <laughs> I've been listening to your Gazapalooza series. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Though I was a little disappointed with your collective appraisal of Gaz 2, the Emirates of Ilarum. While it isn't one of the strongest gazetteers, neither is it the weakest, and it seemed to me that the negative consensus was based on its failure to wow you guys, rather than any inherent flaw. Let me be clear, I'm all for your subjectivity, so I'm not faulting your conclusions. I would, however, invite you to consider some context around which the gazetteers were written and perhaps, as a result, expand the criteria upon which you base your reviews. The Gazetteer series, started in 1987, was the first attempt to detail the known world described in the module Isle of Dread, published six years earlier. As such, they were TSR's first attempt at a fully detailed campaign setting. Indeed, by 1987, both Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms were described only through low-fidelity boxed sets. Any detail came from published modules. That's awesome. Or the DM. <laughs> that, that was an awesome turn of phrase that I plan on stealing and using. A low-fidelity low box. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. It went in the writing bank. <laughs> in short, the Gazetteers were the first stab at a new format. More than a module less than a complete setting. And that format, complete with setting histories, timelines, and cultural notes, theoretically contained everything a DM could need to run a known world campaign, since TSR's practice, in every major setting they produced, was to encourage the DM to pare down published detail instead of providing scant descriptions that DMs could build on. I, I, I would have to disagree with that, but go ahead. As a result, I think it's fair to say the early gazetteers sometimes read more like TSR establishing its canon than as practical campaign aids for consumers. But once that format was established, it stuck. And given that few DMs, myself included, run their campaign along canonical lines, I have found the gazetteers' real value in, one, where they reduce setting creation effort, and two, where they add to the OD&D rule set. It's for these reasons that I've greedily picked up every gazetteer in the series, not because I run a by-the-book Mystara campaign, but rather because each volume gives me material I can migrate to my own settings. Based on that, I'd say Gaz 2 gets at least a few points for the Dervish class, along with desert villages and maps that could be used in any setting. Even the vanilla-flavored cultural melange described in Gaz 2 is a decent foundation for more specific desert societies, assuming the DM doesn't have the time for in-depth research. Cheers, Aaron. Who wants okay. first shot? Well, okay. How many times do I have to say, I wasn't even in that episode? <laughs> I did not say anything bad about Gaz 2 because I was not there. Yeah, you... you- took off before we started reviewing Gaz 2. So. Yeah, I still haven't forgiven you for that either. But 
<laughs> no, I, well, I I appreciate the email, and uh, this was obviously written before we did Gaz 3, so I hope I personally did a better job Gaz 3, because I made a conscientious effort to tack my sales in some of the directions you asked for in your email, Aaron. You can grade me on how I did, but... Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, time for Mike to go bah. 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 <laughs> well, for one thing, I, as I've said before, I gave it a three and a half. That is hardly a bash. That's above my average. Second, I have to disagree. I think before that point, um, the standard at TSR was to give a outline and expect the DM to fill in. Lord knows that was what the Greyhawk folio was for. And it was only as the 80s went on that things got more and more detailed. I will concur that the Gazetteer seems to be their first attempt at that level of detail. But I don't think it was their idea to give, you know, it had been their, what was it, how do you say that in the email? Low fidelity box sets? No, after that. We're just talking about. TSR changing their paradigm. Uh, so they're establishing a canon. Uh, basically, see that TSR's practice in every major setting they produced was to encourage the DM to pare down published detail instead of providing scant descriptions the DMs could build on. Yeah, I, I disagree. I think if you reversed that, that would make sense. Because both, like you, he himself said, the low-fidelity box sets... They didn't go into the level of detail that even one gazetteer does. And I think the gazetteer was the start, but not the end, of an increased level of detail. Now, apparently, people like that. Um, The sales, good lord, the sales on Forgotten Realms alone prove that. It's not really my bag, but most of what he talked about Emerald I thought I had mentioned. I liked the multiple cultures. I liked the desert villages. Um, I didn't like the dervish class, but I suppose, you know, as long as it's there and you don't have to use it. Unfortunately, when you set things in a campaign setting like this, you know, the DM's not the only one that's going to be reading that gazetteer. Everybody's going to buy that gazetteer. And you're going to get a player who's going to go, but I want to play a dervish. No. Why not? You suck as a DM. You know, (laughs) it's... Well, your worst crime in that episode was you really liked the setting, and I uh, debated you in some points, and in a couple of areas, you gave ground. You you were persuaded. So, I mean, that's it. That was that 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 probably pushed it down from a four to the three point five you gave it. But yeah, the the I I'm trying to do a better job with this because it's it's crossed my mind that this is like uh, the difference between the various editions, which. You can debate the rules and mechanics, but you can't debate a playstyle preference. And there's so this is like a judging style preference thing. Some people, yeah. like me, prefer to have their own stuff and and create it by hand and forge the campaign and maybe steal stuff from other things. But I'm just not interested in general because that's my judging style in a in a in a detailed deep campaign setting. But there are plenty of people, as you just mentioned, who that's that's exactly what they want for lots yeah. of lots of reasons and so one's one one judging style is not good and the other bad it's just different people and i'll try and do better you know with my reviews well if it's any consolation aaron if i'd been there i probably would have given it a middle of the road three out of five i'm not sure what that would have made the final tally in the end but (laughs) i'd have to go back and figure out the point so 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 liz you hate it too <laughs> I, I think three is a respectable yeah, number. It, I, it's, it's I didn't I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. You know, it it was it was something solid that had points that could be used. So well, well Aaron's right. That's definitely not the worst one of them because that was the Gaz one. <laughs> so far. So far. Um I mean talk about detail. I actually prefer the Greyhawk folio to the Greyhawk box set. And he mentions the that the box set's low fidelity. But even that's too much detail for me. I like the folio, and I can just build from there. Now, I know I'm not like, you know, all DMs must be like me. No, of course not. In fact, a majority aren't, if sales are any indication. 
But yeah, it, it's it's a matter of perception, like with any subjective review. So anyway, <laughs> any more blows to the dead equine or shall we move to the next email? Uh, let's move to the next, e- next email. <laughs> Our next email is from Evan. Evan! Evan writes, I have just listened to episode 107. You briefly discussed the phenomenon where a PC being mugged is somehow coincidentally mugged by a thief of the same level as he or she is, no matter how many times the mugging reoccurs. This is how I rationalize this to my players. A first-level thief spies a victim. He judges whether or not he will be able to successfully mug the victim. A first-level victim, or PC, looks very different to a fifth-level PC. The thief would mostly make the right kind of judgment and pick on someone he could reasonably rob, so he robs the first-level PC. The same first-level thief spies a fifth-level PC and decides to wait for an easier target. Same applies vice versa. Of course, this is not a perfect rationalization, but it's good enough to plaster over the cracks. (laughs) (laughs) It makes all the NPCs smarter than the player characters, but yeah, that's a good rationalization. Although, by that logic, you'd think a fifth-level thief would you know, be going after the low-level guys because they'd be super easy to take. Well, that's what I meant. A player character thief is thinking, oh, I'm I'm not getting any XPs for that low life. I'm going to go for the big guy. Well, and and there's a problem in that. I mean, A for effort, Evan. Great shot. But I think what it boils down to is judge the victim. So unless you're going to allow NPC thieves to have an ability to look at someone and have a chance of determining their level, then it's basically a, a quote-unquote power that PC thieves do not have. Unless you modify the thief role, you know, basically give them an int check or something. You know, just, if they can roughly judge the level of their of the victim. This reminds me of that Knights of the Dinner Table uh story where uh, Newt won't tell anybody what level his new character is so Steve will goes, well, I grab a stick here, and hit him now, so let's see how easy he is to hit or it's the other way around, he has Steve will hit him with a stick and he crits him dead <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, but on that note, you know, there was something uh, in the original City State of the Invincible Overlord one of the secret organizations I forget the name of it, but it was something like the Benevolent Order of Proper Fighters or something. And their goal was to go around and find low-level P- – well, anybody low-level, but especially low-level PCs if they're wearing plate mail and they don't think that the PC is high enough level yet. To you are not paint- worthy of this plate So they mail. mug him, paint him a bright yellow, and throw him in the alley. <laughs> But again, that assumes that there's some ability to tell what level somebody is. Um, so it's benevolent about mugging someone, taking their stuff, and painting them yellow. <laughs> it's benevolent to those who are worthy to wear plate mail, I guess. I, I don't know. But am anyway, I, am I crazy? I or is this, go ahead. Hmm? Am I crazy, or is this any harder than telling the player character thief, "Okay, I'm going to make a wisdom roll. What's your wisdom?" Yeah, you think that guy's okay. Yeah, basically. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of an and been an issue since the beginning. You know, the whole idea of how can you tell another person's level? And that it, it it's an awkward thing. But yeah, I mean, for most things, especially if your PCs aren't aren't a bunch of curmudgeonly old grognards who are going to sit there and go, well, that doesn't make sense. Back in my day... <laughs> We got beat up by mugging a kobold. We were thankful. Well, I mean, <laughs> I suppose you could make a wisdom roll or whatever to see, you know, how do they carry themselves? Do they seem to have, you know, a relaxed sort of self-assurance that a lower level or zero level person might not necessarily have? Um, Ooh. You could hire some street urchins to follow the person and throw stones at them. <laughs> Seriously, depending on how well they're hit, that would give you a gauge. 
You know, all of this conversation is kind of upsetting my stomach because if it was for to be serious, if it was for real at my table, I would absolutely force the player in question to role play it in character. And my answers would be, well, the guy is in the back of the tavern with a hood pulled over his head and he's smoking a pipe with his feet kicked up on the table. Not, you know, he seems like he's 10th level ranger. Mm. <laughs> and then let the player go. Is that, is so that... basically you're okay with no ability to tell an opponent's level at all? Well, I'm uh, I'm not against that. I'm in favor of, let's just role play it and make it a conversation instead of a die roll. What are you looking for? Well, here's what you see. That's all I'm suggesting. But then you, yeah, but then you have to come up with what are the cues? And what are the cues for each class? I mean, it's doable, certainly. It just seems like it would require a lot of lot of rolling, or rather a lot of um, pre-listing of what you consider cues would be for a 10th level fighter as opposed to a 1st level fighter or a 3rd level magic user or so on and so forth. Well, I think either way, you would have to tail and watch the person for quite some time before making a judgment. Yeah. Unless you had something crinian where wizards were only allowed to wear certain color robes at certain <laughs> levels. Hey, that... he's evil. <laughs> he's yeah. wearing black. That's convenient. <laughs> and then and uh, the same thing in reverse too as as the judge, I, you know, if the players are fat with gold and have really been showing it off and around in town, I might decide it's a better story if they get mucked and and mm-hmm. you know, figure out what a, a you know, a nice challenge and chance of all that would be just like any judge does on the fly well there's a certain chance let's see there's 40 percent chance that'll happen rattle 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 okay. okay you miss yeah a challenge so you're saying that these fifth level characters wouldn't get mugged by a group of first level thieves it would it be around fifth level thieves uh my uh conceit is it would de- it would i would make that decision on the fly and it would depend on what i think makes the best story you know mm. If the if the okay. players have been jackasses and they're lording it all over the town with their money, eh, you know they need a little attitude, course correction. You okay. know, otherwise, if it doesn't contribute to the story, why have it happen at all? No, well, I can see that point. All right. Well, anything else or next email? Uh, I, I think we've I think we've um beaten this horse into the ground. <laughs> so we'll go to the next email. I'll try and be good the next email. How about that? <laughs> As it lays next to the, next to the dead horse of Gaz 2. Of Gaz 2. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an Arabian dead horse, so it's very nice. Our next email is from J.V. West. J.V. J.V. JV. And J.V. writes, Sodders. <laughs> you know, that the... the openings of each of these emails is getting less and less <laughs> flattering as it goes on. Well, at least we do not have Andy Action's um, appellation for us, um, which I will not repeat here, but Andy, don't do that again. It's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but back to JV. He says, Sodders. <laughs> I enjoyed episode number 110, Save versus the Arduin Grimoire, <laughs> more than a kobold enjoys a bone with rotten meat attached. Arf, arf. Like everyone else, I can't get enough of John Peterson's sober and informed presence on the show. Yeah, keep we need that, that. Yeah, keep that guy coming back. I'm now intrigued by Mists. <laughs> oh, and you other cast members, you're pretty good too. So we'll keep you around as well. Thank you, sir. <laughs> keep rolling 20s, J.V. West. Yeah, we can't have John Peterson coming back all the time because then instead of save or die, it'll turn into John Peterson and his amazing friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and he is so nice and kind. And every time we ask him, he says yes. So we don't want to abuse that privilege. <laughs> yeah, and, we, and he's pretty busy. So we try not to just... Every week, every couple of weeks. John, come on. We're talking about something. <laughs> we don't know what we're talking about yet, but you would be a valuable addition. That's right. 
Yes, we'll be the first to to also agree that John Peterson is awesome. <laughs> Although I will say the uh, Cobalt and the Bone, I was listening to episode five of the Iron Realm, and when he's giving the the combat descriptions of the rounds as they go by while the party is fighting a group of kobolds, he put in dogs barking. Ooh, barking noises. <laughs> fighting. And as one dies, you hear a dog. <laughs> that podcast has really got you hooked, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it, it has. I, I, it, it's, I'm not big on actual plays, but he certainly jazzes it up to keep it amusing, so... Natural 20. Boom. Boom. <laughs> so anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks, JV. Thank you, JV. I'm sure we'll have John Peterson back again. <laughs> really soon. Really soon. Unless he suddenly comes to his senses. <laughs> it's like, yeah. My God, what have I been doing? <laughs> I've got a great idea. This is brilliant. The next time we do a gazetteer, we'll invite John on to do the whole show by, <laughs> by himself <laughs> And let him take all the heat. Oh, that's awesome. Hmm. <laughs> or just have him on with us. I'd love to hear his opinions. That would be cool. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll toss the idea at him, see if he'll come over. Because it'd be <laughs> Gas 4, whatever that is. Is that the... No, that's not Glantry. We already did Glantry. Oh, well. Anyway. Which one yeah. is the, the Orcs one? Because I'm kind of looking, looking forward to that one. That's further down. I think we you get further on when you start getting the quote unquote semi human yeah, yeah the areas. So how many are there altogether? Thirteen or fourteen. Oh dear lord! <laughs> if you whether depending on whether or not you want to count the box set for Dawn of the Emperors. Actually, I'm figuring by eight or nine we won't even have a listening audience left. That's <laughs> right. But we'll have lots of emails. <laughs> so next. Okay, our next email is from James. James! James! Just James. Just James. James writes, Greetings, Save or Die podcasters. Thank you. We're getting, see, it's, it's, we're on the upswing now. Woohoo, yes. <laughs> I have a question for you about your classic D&D miniatures. What type of miniatures did you use back in the day? Oh, good question. What old miniatures companies did you like? I know that old school classic Dungeons and Dragons doesn't really need miniatures and the theory of mind's eye theater. I'm just curious about your experiences. Never. A man's miniatures are his own private kingdom. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. <laughs> I've, I've, so I've, by I've... that statement, we can very safely assume that you had the slave auction miniatures. No, no, I have them now though. Mm. <laughs> Guy on Dragon's Foot made me buy them as part of a a lot I was buying once. And ate him. Wait, he did. <laughs> anyway, okay, fine. You start, Liz, with your minis. Fine, I will. <laughs> okay, uh, the only minis I owned back in the day when I was eleven, twelve years old. Um, was the Dungeon Dwellers box set Caverns of Doom from Heritage. Oh, it's uh, a good that, set. That was my only set of minis for the longest time, uh, was that box set. Um, I didn't really live in an area where you could get just tons of gaming accessories. So while my parents got me a lot of the books and the box sets and everything for Christmas and birthday gifts, there wasn't much in the way of things like dice sets or minis or dragon magazines that you could easily get. So I didn't have a lot of that kind of stuff until I got to around, you know, 16 to 18 years old. Um, so yeah, I, the Caverns of Doom minis got a lot of mileage for many years because they were all I had. And I tried painting them because they came with the paints, you know, and I was... Painfully. 12. I was 12 and they turned out rather dreadfully, but I still have them all. Um, so yeah, um, I didn't really get access to other minis until, like I said, several years later. I really wasn't terribly impressed by most sculptors until the Julie Guthrie line came out through Grenadier. Um, 
it was next to impossible to get a decent looking female mini until her sculpts came out. Um, yeah, the seventies, like Ral Partha, you know, they were like men with breasts on them. You well, know? no, that was Grenadier. Okay, that was Grenadier. You know, yeah, so. and I was like, I was going to say, the problem is virtually all the early seventy, late seventies, early eighties minis were there because military wargaming, miniature wargaming companies were jumping on the fantasy bandwagon. So these are guys that spend all their time, you know, carving men usually in military uniforms, and it kind of told. I, for instance, those um, heritage set, paint and play sets, the fantasy ones, were full of Heritage's Lord of the Rings line. Yeah, you, know, you had the it's, elf, you had a skeleton, you had all this other stuff. A dwarf, a hobbit, and a wizard that looked like exactly like Gandalf, and a bunch of monsters. Mm-hmm. Which was cool because the monsters, you know. Yeah, I really enjoyed the monsters in there, but you know, I was—I remember being disappointed that there was no female mini at all. And yeah, when I started seeing, you know, other, you know, female minis that you could buy, you know, they—they they looked ugly to me. I didn't want them. Jim, Tim Cask actually converted me fairly recently in the last four or five years when he ran his OD&D campaign to the whole theater of the mind thing and going miniless. Um, when I was a young man and for years thereafter, I was huge about the miniatures because I'm an artist. So I liked collecting them and painting them. And my goal was to, I showed up with like a suitcase of minis and whatever monster my brother named, I'd reach in and, and get it. Being that guy gave me a little quick preview of what the encounter was going to be. So there was there was a method to my madness, but <laughs> I started with the uh, Grenadier minis before they had the AD&D license. So it was Wizards and Warriors, and Ralph Partha was all there was to get when when I started. And uh, I have friends that would sh- would punch me for saying this, but I personally preferred the Grenadiers over the Ralph Parthas. Not that I really cared that much. I just I loved the exaggerated cartoon you know, big heads and, and, and Bigfoot style of, of the, the sculpting. And there, I, I remember we, my very first D and D group, Judy McGlone, redhead, um, was in that group playing a female cleric. And it was a couple of years before we found her a good grenadier female cleric figure, but it was, it was perfectly feminine when we, when they finally made one, which was during the AD and D line. Um, I, 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 I now know what was going on at Ralph Partha because I'm a cartoonist. I, responded to the more cartoony miniatures but uh as you suggest mike although the ralph partha guys uh tom meyer and those guys were big war gamers and big historical war gamers they were they were really into fantasy but they were in the 70s obsessed with true true 25 millimeter scale and true proportions so i i didn't respond to that as a as a young man um later on i got more into that and they finally gave ground to grenadier success and started doing some more exaggerated like the the staged class characters where you'd buy the blister pack and it would be your your druid or your magic user your fighter through three different level jumps mm-hmm. those were awesome yeah mm-hmm. oh i was just gonna end with a comment that i have uh, I, like mikey mason in the red box i have a, a great nostalgia fondness for the heritage minis because i bought those and painted them when i was young i mean you look back now those are some pretty rough sculpts sorry sorry max Carr. i loved your work then i still love it now but whew. they were they, they they were actually created with the lost wax technique before the green putty so that kind of affected how they came out and how they were sculpted does it make sense um yeah i guess okay sorry ask, if you're an art person i guess it does so anyway I started with uh, Heritage myself with the other paint-and-play fantasy set, uh, Crypt of the Sorcerer. And, yeah, they they were – and the early Grenadiers, though it was the AD&D line. I think the first box set I got from Grenadier was one of those little cardboard yellow boxes that had like 10 minis in it in the foam. And it was the AD&D magic users and clerics. And – I had always preferred the Ralpartha stuff because I always thought they had a lot better detail than the Grenadier and especially the Heritage, were, which were frankly kind of bulky. Um, That's absolutely some, true. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it, I, it didn't really for me. 
However, the other end of that is, like you said, true 25s, because now today the standard is 28 or 30 mil. Back then it was 25. Now what was exactly 25 depended on your company generally. But the Ralpartha minis were always just a little smaller than the Grenadiers of the Heritage, um, which was great if you were trying to go for like elves or something as PCs. Um, humans, not so much. Again, dwarves and hobbits, well, you know, short is short, so that's not going to make much difference. Um, but I always really liked the Ralpartha stuff. And uh, yeah, I, we didn't have any place in Greenville to buy minis either. So I had to go down to Jackson to a hobby store maybe twice a year and actually buy some minis. It's like, well, I got it. I don't know. I'm buying it, you know, just to have something. Uh, we got a lot of those minis now. Most of them are the old Ralparthas or Grenadiers, but a few, quote unquote, more modern minis as well. And we don't do anything with them. <laughs> but we've got them. Uh, isn't Iron Wind Metals basically um, Ralpartha under a new name? Right. When uh, Ralpartha had its issues and folded up shop, uh, Michael No, who I'm friends with today, was had, had worked there a long time. I forget his exact position then, but he uh, arranged to uh, take on ownership of the company. And they were partnered for a long time with, uh, I want to get this right, after the FASA thing went away and Ralpartha collapsed. I think they were partnered with uh, WizKids for quite a long time. I mean, that partnership okay. just ended since I moved back to Cincinnati. So within the last 10 years is when it went that way. And Mike rents the company now. But, I mean, as long as they still have the license for them and the rights to them, all those Ralpartha moles are still on the shelf back there. Yeah, I heard a rumor that a lot of the, or at least some of the old heritage sculptors are at Reaper now, which I find interesting because heritage used to be based in Dallas. So you know, I, I've, I've been back in Reaper's uh, mold room too, and that's, it's not as true as the raw part the thing is with Iron Wind, but they do have a bunch of stuff back there. Okay. And, of course, that's the problem now if you want to get into old minis. Since the average character minis now tend to be 28 to 30 mil, they loom over the old raw part of the 25s. I'll I can tell you a good mini story about Reaper. I went to one of the Heritage reunions at Reaper uh, back, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and... Uh, Willard Dennis uh, had struck some molds for me, and they let me spin cast from the molds. And then I found out that Reaper had once produced Doom, the video game miniatures, under license. Huh. And and even though they no longer had the license for those miniatures, at Reaper, back in a the corner, they had a, a locked room where all the molds were kept that they could no longer have cast from. And I and I got I talked Willard into taking me back in the room and letting me see the molds, and then I did every Jedi mind trick I know to get them to let me cast a run, and they wouldn't do it. <laughs> so I was being the force is strong with this one. They successfully saved versus lawsuit. I, I guess I was being hilariously evil that day. Yeah. Your charm person failed. All right. Well, yeah. So. You know, if you want to get the old minis, you know, they're they're cool, but keep in mind the scale issue. And uh, otherwise, it's have at. We're not getting rid of ours, that's for sure. <laughs> not even the slave auction by Ralph Partha. Not even. <laughs> Next email. Well, there's uh, one additional email that I'll have to read because Liz doesn't have it. Uh, a gentleman named Chris Mohall uh gave me a bunch of hell this week on Facebook over something we did in one of the episodes, and I told him it would make a great email, so write it up and send it in, and we would read it. So uh, Chris writes, uh, Hail Sodsters! Disclaimer, I rarely, if ever, take issue with something you fine folks say on the show, but I'm afraid I must, this time, take umbrage. Uh, during your great episode 114 interview with Bob Bloodsaw Jr., Mr. Wampler made mention of that the word gonzo had not been a part of everyday vernacular in relation to writing art at all during the time when Judges Guild was publishing their very gonzo materials. In actuality, the word gonzo was first coined by a journalist from the Boston Globe in 1969 or 1970 in reference to the style of writing then being developed and perfected by Hunter S. Thompson. Never Sp heard of him. <laughs> I, I only lived in Louisville for 12 years where he was born. But uh, 
or from rather uh speci- before i get another email um <laughs> uh uh chris goes on to say specifically he had called a now legendary article thompson wrote about the kentucky derby pure gonzo journalism so it was a term in some circles but perhaps not common usage wise used to describe such literary iconoclasm uh, did i say that right iconoclasm yeah that uh, Judges Guild certainly would have been wonderfully accused of. Forgive me, I am sometimes lamentably a walking Hunter S. Thompson encyclopedia. As always, you all keep me sane. Keep up the exemplary work. DM Know-It-All, a.k.a. Chris Mohall. <laughs> so uh, he's right, and I, I told him on Facebook. I just wanted to say it on the air. A clearer statement for me might have been that when the Judges Guild stuff was coming out, I hadn't yet heard Gonzo referred to in gaming circles in the sense that we use it today. Yeah. I think the very first time I, I read it, remember reading it is into the forward to fourth edition game world, but he's, okay. he's, he's entirely right. Hunter S. Thompson and the Gonzo term is from the late sixties, early seventies. A pioneer in many things, Mr. Hunter <laughs> S. Thompson, but thank you for the email. So we can do the culp, <laughs> the Mia culpa as it were on the show. Oh, you know what Hunter S. Thompson said, right? When the gaming gets weird, the weird turn pro. (laughs) That is not what he said. Really? I thought that was St. Francis of Assisi. (laughs) No, I thought he said never give a sucker an even break. Oh, okay. That was that was St. Francis. (laughs) I knew it was one of those guys. All right. Well, the email bag, at least for this episode, seems to have emptied. And where would people write if they'd like to call in to Speak highly of our gazetteer coverage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) on the off chance that you would want to speak highly of our gazetteer coverage. (laughs) We're due. It could happen. It could happen. But, you know, if, you know, for some odd reason you wanted to tell us how great you thought it was, (laughs) you would do so at saveordiepodcast at gmail.com. But more than likely, you will tell us how dreadful our gazetteer coverage is. And you would also do so at saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can do so by calling blah, 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 threesod. (laughs) Or something. Or something. Well, as I was about to say, (laughs) if, however, you would prefer us to get the vitriol of your <laughs> voice about our coverage of a gazetteer, you can voicemail us at 940-536-3763. And another episode ends. Dusty Road of hijack- Hijacking. <laughs> <laughs> hitchhiking. I, I, I don't think I want to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> of hitchhikers with... Uh, Gamma Ray Endowed Powers. And how are we heading down the road, Jim? Uh, I'm heading down the dusty road, uh, checking out the local Wi-Fi with my sonic sunglasses. (laughs) 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 Ha-ha. And you, Liz? Um, well, I'm going down the road a bit concerned about possible hijacking. (laughs) (laughs) However, I'm sure the band of kobolds that I have with me will protect me from any danger. Because you threw them a bun. Yes. Rotten meat on it. Well, yeah. The good stuff. (laughs) Whereas I am simply running down the road trying to avoid my heritage model troll who has the face of Bozo the Clown. I kid not. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It does. (laughs) And we'll see you at episode 117. See ya! Assuming... Oh, sorry. Assuming we're not hijacked or or, or ambushed. Yes. Liz? Goodbye. goodbye to everybody. Goodbye. See ya! Please don't hijack me. (laughs) Free arc. And we're out. Whew! And now the Saber Die Podcast presents Voyage of the Princess Ark, Part 1. The Voyage of the Princess Ark by Bruce Hurd. Read to you by Ted Meister. From the journals of Prince Haldemar of Hawken, Lord Admiral of the Mightiest Empire, Captain of the Ever Victorious Princess Ark, 
Imperial Explorer, etc., etc. Nixmere 11th, 1964 AY. I am astounded by the complete lack of interest in geographical matters on the part of Alphatia's younger mages. Worse, it has been found that the geographical teachings offered at Ariadna High are based on the fallacies of a Thiatian lowlife. This general, without a doubt a failure in the Thiatian legions, retired after a shabby campaign in Thothia. There he stole an ancient map of this world from a pillaged temple. The map was but a simple continental outline with a few words here and there. Upon his return, this lowlife invented kingdoms and empires and placed them on the map and wrote tome upon tome about them. His knowledge of ancient Nithian and his interest in the truth being what they were, nothing good came out of this ignorant barbarian's overactive imagination. He made a fortune selling his books, and many took them as the final authority on the world. His errors were legion. Ridiculous assumptions were made about the size of the Thiatian Empire. The map shows the limits of what that empire is stretching beyond the Wendarian reaches, north of the principalities of Glantry. Poppycock! There are at least a half a dozen countries between Thiatus and Glantry having nothing to do with Thiatus. You can forget about these absurd borders, too. These were in fact various creases in the original crumpled map which the Thiatian dimwit mistook for actual borders. The Empire of the Great Khan, east of our province of Esterhold, is another fantasy. There are indeed large steps there, but no Great Khan. We'd know about it by now. And yes, about this Dorfin Empire. It was the joke of a certain gnomish king, the inventor of wondrous but totally useless contraptions who went by the name of King Dorfin IV. His kingdom is, in truth, merely the workshop of a few hundred gnomes in the hills of Karamaikos. One of Dorf's favorite pastimes was to send loyal followers beyond the signed desert. There, they would pose as plenipotentiaries of the imaginary Empire of Dorfin IV, then hire the local people to carry a sealed message back to the real King Dorfin. These strange messengers, obviously from a distant place, seemed to make quite an impression on the local Karamaikan barons when they brought the gnomish king those phony and pompous greetings from his imperial cousin to the west. These messages hinted at the outrageous size of this bogus empire, alleged to be twice the size of Alpha Tia. What nonsense! And the barons believed it, the fools! I shall skip the details on other equally false kingdoms, such as Vulcania, that was a Thaitian general's wife's name, Cestia, his mistress, Brassol, his dog, Tangor, a brand of cheap beer found in the streets of Newkirk, or Zixel, a deceased gladiatorial hero whom the general claimed was also a fallen queen of that same region. For all of this, I find that I grudgingly admire such a bold and irreverent joker. After all, everyone fell for his fake encyclopedias. I propose that in the name of Grand Buffoonery, we keep these place names, since they are now the ones in which laymen are most familiar, but we should use them in a purely geographic sense. For example, let's do away with the nation of Nensen, an Enthangarian word for a Heldanner's armpit, and simply call that land the Nensen Peninsula. Similarly, we'll forget about the state of Izonda, hin for fruitcake, <laughs> it figures, renaming that area the Desert of Izonda, since this is what is really there. So be it. It is time to see for myself if this old Nithian map has any truth to it. I today obtained permission from Her Imperial Majesty for the Princess Ark be recommissioned for a last but glorious mission of exploration in the name of our illustrious Empire. Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. Meet on 
a stick for tonight's episode was provided by the Ralston Purina Cobalt Chow Company. Sonic sunglasses were courtesy of the BBC. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. Well, I had an answer for the front part, because clearly we're the Mirror Universe versions, because I'm the one with the beard. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, as far as Mike and Liz go, if they're the bad Mike is the evil Mike, I'm the good Mike. But if that guy's the good Mike, I guess I'm the neutral Mike. (laughs) So I don't know what Liz is. I I listen to enough to fall in love with that woman. Holy crap. (laughs) I can hear the red hair over my headset. (laughs) He don't see your face